morning. Thank you, praise team. We are in the middle of a series called God's Story and God's Glory. If you don't have a study guide, there's some in the back that kind of walk through uh, each, each Sunday's message, so I encourage you to grab that. And the series is basically a, a biblical theology approach uh, to, to the Bible, and so we're striving to understand the Bible from the viewpoint of the original authors and the original audience. Uh, What's been helpful for me is, is when I realize we're trying to gain a, a understanding of the grand narrative of the Bible. And, and we've chosen about eight central themes in the Bible to focus on, one each week, to kind of frame everything in between that. And so the first week was God as creator. And one of the most helpful things I thought that I appreciated that Ben shared was sometimes we get caught up in, in the how God created, and we start to obsess over the details as opposed to really focusing on God's heart intent of creation, the why he created, and his purpose of creating. And then Bill led us into uh, the, the study of the kingdom, essentially how, how God is the king of a kingdom. And so a kingdom has uh, a place and a people that he reigns over. And so uh, the, I suppose the key word for me there was lordship. The, the sovereignty and authority of God over a group of people. And today we're going to talk about covenant and atonement. And so we're going to define covenant and define atonement the best that we can and see how this idea of covenant kind of shapes much of the relationship and much of God's interaction with people uh, really through the history of mankind. So if you guys are up for it, would you please pray with me? Father, I pray for your protection. I pray for your wisdom to teach us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would give us understanding. Jesus, thank you that you are alive and that we can come to your scriptures, uh, not just as a book, not just as words, uh, but the very breath of God, that they are applicable to our lives now. In Christ's name, amen. So a covenant is essentially an agreement between two parties at the base level. It's similar to a contract where two people swear oaths to abide by certain conditions, that there's typically uh, consequences for, for failing those expectations and those conditions. When there's two equal parties to, uh, in status, two parties, two humans that are equal, uh, this is called uh, a parity treaty. And when there's two unequal parties, uh, we call this the suzerain vassal treaty. So this is most typical, especially in ancient days, when a king would enter into covenant with his people. And so the king, or the one with authority, uh, would make promises uh, and base and, and create some conditions for his people to follow. And so with God, uh, the covenant is more in line with that. Obviously, this isn't two humans, but there is a greater and a lesser. I hope that's obvious to you. Uh, so a covenant with God, essentially, I want to kind of create some different ideas and definitions of what this might, might look like, because we really don't use this idea of covenant a whole lot today. So really, it's a partnership where God makes oath-bound promises, and he asks people to fulfill commitments. There's conditions and there's expectations of people, and God has bound himself to certain oaths and promises that he'll 
make good on. And like all covenants, there's blessings that come when we follow the conditions, and there's curses if we do not. So another way to think about this is divine promises with human conditions. I want to talk a bit about a partnership. Many of us have entered into either formal partnerships or informal partnerships. And the idea is to accomplish a common goal together. And when we're coming underneath God and his purposes and his intent, uh, I believe that is to bring the fullness of God's goodness into the world. So when you think about God's desire to glorify himself by bringing his goodness into this space that we occupy, that is our reality, that is our truth, and the invitation for us to become a part of that is much of what it means to give ear and to draw attention and to step into the covenant relationship with God. Now, if we go all the way back to creation, we recognize that something was broken, something was fallen. So really, I think the invitation or the, the common goal, the common purpose is to partner with God to restore his fellowship with man and with the world. Throughout all the covenants in Scripture, there's a common theme. And many of them are directly stated after the covenants, and others are kind of spaced out in between each covenant as we look at the history of mankind. And essentially, God continues to declare that I will be your God, and you will be my people. So it's an invitation into a relationship. And we, we know we talk a lot about God being a teacher. We talk about God being a father. We talk about God being a friend. We talk about God being a lover. So there's all different kinds of relationships uh, or words that we have that, that we try to capture what God is inviting us into. But I think the most common relationship as far as covenant goes that we have is marriage. And so I think about when I was uh, first dating my wife Sherry and praying about is this the woman that God wants me to pursue in marriage. Uh, essentially, I, I got to the point where I felt very confident and, and strong and convicted that God is asking me to propose marriage to my wife. It's, it's an invitation to enter into covenant with me. And so my declaration was, you are this important to me. I'm this serious about my love for you that I'm inviting you into a covenant. And so stop and think about God inviting us into relationship to bring him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the utmost glory. It's God looking at you and saying, you're this important to me. I'm this serious about our relationship that I want to enter into a relationship with as much depth as possible. So a covenant is an invitation into relationship. Now the word atonement basically has some, some different uh, definitions. One of the most helpful for me is basically, essentially, it means to cover. And specifically, it's to cover over someone's debt. It's, it's, a, it's amends for an offense. Words that are closely tied to atonement are substitute, ransom, which often involves a price or a cost, purification, which most of the time has this idea of blood tied to it, the sprinkling of blood, where in Scripture, specifically in the Old Testament, blood represents life. Life is in the blood, it says. And so most of the time when we think of blood, we think of bleeding. And so you think of when you lose blood, it's, it's, it's life leaving you. So when you lose blood, it leads to death. And when we think through atonement, 
and the Bible links blood very, very closely to this word of covering, there's almost always this idea of a losing blood that leads to death to one, but life to another. And so we're going to see how in the context of covenant, in the context of inviting partnership and relationship to accomplish a goal with God, the necessity for atonement, that, that now, because of man's failures, those two words are, are chained together. So in the Old Testament, we have uh, many different covenants that fall underneath the Old Covenant, and we're going to talk about, I think there's five of them that we'll discuss today, again, to kind of give us framework for, honestly, the history of man. So the first one is the covenant with Adam. Basically, God tells Adam as he creates them, Adam and Eve, he says, you're going to rule the earth. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. The divine promise, essentially, is eternal life and dominion over all things, and the world will be agreeable um, as man is sovereign over all creation. But the human condition is perfect obedience. The human condition is trust me and obey. I'm faithful, you be faithful. And as we know, God basically gives uh, essentially one rule. Predominantly, do whatever you want, but here's what you don't need to do. Eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so that's the condition that, as we know, Adam and Eve failed at. And as soon as that failed, guilt and sin and brokenness and shame entered our world. And so the first covenant, man fails. And we do what men continue to do. We try to solve our own problem. We try to cover our own shame. So Adam and Eve created fig leaves and covered their shame and covered their differences and began to point the finger and blame, which is very, very similar to what we do today, right? But God continues to be faithful in spite of man's failings, and that's the common theme of the Bible, is it not? And so in the garden, as man covers himself with something that just won't cut it, something that won't take care of his shame, something that won't last, something that's extremely temporary. So God makes a sacrifice, and we can pretty much, it's not in, directly in the scriptures, but I'm pretty sure this is an animal sacrifice. It says he covers them with the skin of an animal. He covers them with leather. And the Bible doesn't say this, but my money would be that this is probably a lamb. So this is the first sacrifice of God that says, you can't solve your own problem. You can't deal with your own sin. And so let me make sacrifice. Let me shed blood. Let me provide atonement to cover you. Atonement, blood, death, leading to life. The next covenant we're going to talk about is with Noah. So in Genesis 8.20, Uh, Well, in Genesis 6 and 7, God destroys the earth because he says he looks upon the earth and everything is wicked. Everyone is wicked. It is destroying each other. It is destroying his earth. It is destroying everything in creation is the evil and wickedness in man's heart. And so he makes a covenant with Noah after he destroys all the earth and he saves Noah and his family. And he tells Noah, we know the story, grab animals and save some of them too all of them, Uh, and after he destroys the evil, after God's heart is grieved, after he hits the reset button, again, he continues to make a path for his purposes. And this is kind of an interesting covenant because it's one-sided. 
God promises never to destroy the earth that way again. That from now on, the earth will be a somewhat reliable place to execute his partnership with man. And so this covenant God makes, and there's no human conditions attached to it. He still gives commands to Noah and his family. He still um, encourages them to do certain things, and it's the same thing. Trust me, obey me, see my provision. But he detaches that. Uh, from this covenant promise. And one way we know that is, this is interesting, that he makes a covenant, it says, with every living creature and all the earth. So the covenant with Noah is more than just Noah. It's a covenant with all the animals. It's a promise to the earth itself. So kind of unique in that sense. And then God says, I'm going to give you a sign, which often happens, sometimes directly after a covenant conversation, and other times it surrounded it. And so the sign we know as the rainbow. Scripture says that God's bow will be in the clouds. Uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Story Bible uh, puts it in a great way. She says, God's bow is pointed up to the heart of heaven. So as the wrath of God in the flood came pouring out on evil that was on the earth, God promises to not destroy the earth, but one day his wrath and his sadness and his anger will come down again. But this time it will come down on his son. And so the bow hung in heaven is a symbol and a foreshadowing of atonement, of substitute, of blood, of death that leads to life. The next large covenant we run into is with a man named Abraham. And so God's divine promise to him is that God will bless him and his descendants with good land. He's going to establish a people with health and prosperity and security and numbers. And if you remember, Abraham is 99 years old. His wife is 90 years old. And so the first miracle, he says, is, I'm going to give you an impossible child. You're going to have a child, and through that line, all of this blessing will come. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing, and your line and your heritage will be a blessing to all the world. He's forming more than just a group of people. He's forming a family. And he's entering into this covenant family, starting with a small group of people that eventually will open up the opportunity for all people to become a part of this family. There's signs surrounding this as well. There's human conditions surrounding this. He says in Genesis 17, he says, Walk before me and be blameless. Again, do what I say. Trust me. Obey me. That's the condition. Submit to me as king. That's my expectation of you. There's some uh, interesting signs surrounding this covenant. Uh, There's foreshadowing, I think, in Genesis 15, 9 through 18. uh, Abraham understands what covenant life is like, and there's very formal traditions and rituals surrounding this. So Abraham, in Genesis 15, he makes sacrifice, he splits animals, And he lays them aside, uh, an aisle of animal, dead animal sacrifices. And the tradition is that the lesser member of the covenant would pass through the way, pass through in between, uh, declaring or responding to the the call and the invitation to covenant, essentially saying, uh, I will take this serious as well. And so as you have provided the way, I will walk in your way. And if I do not, may I become like these animal sacrifices. 
But, but Abraham never enters through that. As he prepares this, he falls into a sleep and has a vision. And his vision is that a smoking pot and a burning fire passes through the pieces. And most scholars, I believe that this is God saying, just like every covenant, man cannot fulfill his end. And so the fire oftentimes in scripture represents God. And so God is saying, I will establish the covenant and I will fulfill both ends of the covenant. There's another interesting sign that takes place uh, around the covenant with Abraham, and that's one of circumcision. It says, in your flesh, I will wound you. I will cut off a part of you where every man in Israel, so newborns eight days after they're born, but right now, he's first establishing this, establishing this, and so he says, grab every man and circumcise them. And if a man is uncircumcised, he will be cut off from my people because he has broken my covenant, which is designed to be an everlasting covenant. So what's up with circumcision? I think, again, just like the apple, just like every condition God lays, it's an element of trust. It's God saying, do you trust me? And in this case, with the most vulnerable part of a man's body. In this case, it's the place of your anatomy that it most essentially defines you as a man. So it's this idea of your identity. A man's mind can imagine, a man's feet can deploy, a man's hands can create and fabricate, but this is the only place that man can partake in creating life. So you may see this is the, this is the most powerful piece of a man and God saying that's what I want to wound that's what I want to cut off so as much as trust it's a place of utter dependence upon me God's saying I want to mark you as my man I want to claim you again I will be your God and you will be my people a few years later, there's another incredible foreshadowing and sign that most of us know. The impossible son, Isaac, has been gifted to Abraham and Sarah. And years later, God says, I want you to sacrifice the promised one. Doesn't make a lot of sense. But Abraham trusts God as provider. Abraham trusts God as good. And I believe Isaac trusts God as provider and good. So they march up the hill, and you remember Isaac says, where's the sacrifice? And God says, or Abraham says, God will provide. And so as he climbs onto the wood pile, and Abraham takes out the knife, God stops him and says, don't kill the boy. And just then, there's another sacrifice prepared. There's a lamb in the thickets. And so they sacrifice a lamb, and once again, there's covering. Once again, there's atonement. Once again, there's blood shed for life to be spared and to be granted. We see how all this is leading somewhere, don't we? Next covenant is with the country, the nation of Israel, uh, or specifically with, through Moses to the nation of Israel. Uh, it's found in Exodus 19. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 4 and 6, we just got done talking about the Ten Commandments and God visiting Moses on Mount Sinai. 
So God's divine promise is to bless them. It's once again establish them as a healthy, prosperous, and strong people. That they are to be a sign to the rest of humanity that God's ways are good, that God's ways are just, that God's ways are right. So that if these people live underneath the Ten Commandments and underneath the law given through Moses, it, it will be such a healthy and attractive thing that, that people will look and say, God is a good king and I want to become a part of that. The human conditions is be obedient. Follow my law. Come underneath my kingship. Do what I say. We know again, man continues to fail. Signs around this covenant are a little bit less singular, attached specifically to the covenant, but you think about this, Israel just lived through all these signs, right? They were slaves, and they were freed. They were facing death with a sea in front of them and an army behind them, and God made a way. They had nothing in the wilderness, and God provided manna from heaven and water from a rock. Or all of these are continual signs, but perhaps the, I think, most prominent one took place during the plagues while they were slaves, when the last plague was death to the firstborn. And he says, I want you to sacrifice a lamb. I want you to shed blood of an innocent lamb, and I want you to spread it over the door of your house so that when the angel of death passes by, he will pass over and spare who's ever in that home. This is atonement. This is blood. This is covering. This is death, sacrifice, that leads to life. One thing that's helpful for me when I look back and think through all of the Old Testament covenants is I really believe that the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central moment and central point in all of human history. And so if that's the case, I, th- I, I see if the cross is here, God works from there in both directions. And so God, knowing the grace that will ultimately be poured out at the death and resurrection of Jesus, he supplies grace to history, where history in some ways was written from the future. It was written from the reality of our resurrected Jesus Christ and the perfect lamb and the perfect covering, the perfect sacrifice. And so you see in all of these covenants, even though they were pre the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you see God in some ways writing that history from the point of that reality. And that's the beauty of reading, from our perspective, Old Covenant and Old Testament, being able to be witnesses of the resurrection Jesus. Next covenant in the Old Testament is with David. 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 23, 1 Chronicles 17 are the narrative that we go here. And essentially, David, Israel is now large and prosperous and powerful. And David is king of Israel. So the divine promise to David is that one day, one of David's descendants will establish peace and blessing to all nations. That he will be the ultimate king and ruler. That he will sit on the throne forever and ever. That this is an everlasting king in 
being a sovereign over an everlasting kingdom. The human condition is similar to all the others. He asks them to lead his people to obey his law, to do what is right, to do what is just, to do what is loving. I think the sign surrounding this covenant came year earlier as well, or the one that I want to point out today. And we'll remember the story of David and Goliath, right? Where God's people, Israel, great nation, but the Philistines have always been against them. The Philistines are a powerful, large people. And so when a giant seeks to destroy, when a giant seeks to enslave, when a giant seeks to kill, we see David as a representative of God destroying the giant and bringing deliverance and freedom from what looked like certain death. And a thousand years later, another son of David would do battle with a greater giant, would do battle with what Revelation says is the dragon, which is Satan. And he would destroy the enemy, and he would conquer ultimate death in his resurrection. The beauty that at the resurrection, Jesus Christ killed death. That's atonement. That's sacrifice. That's blood shed that leads to life for another. In each of these covenants, humans have consistently failed to uphold their end. Time after time after time, God sets an expectation and we continually fail to meet the expectation. And this sets the stage perfectly for us to understand and to grab hold of and to admit and to repent that we are desperate for someone else's life to count for ours. That all of this is ushering in by the grace of God, by the gift of God, a new way, a new covenant. All of this is ushering in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Because here's the problem. God is determined to eliminate evil. Have you thought about that? God is determined to eliminate evil. And he will. But the problem is the evil is me. The problem, the evil is us. The problem, the evil is his creation. What he wants as a covenant partner. So how is he going to do this? All of history and all these covenants have pointed to his solution. Jeremiah 31 gives us a sign. It says, Behold, 31:31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, well, I will make a new covenant. Down a little further, it says, I will put my law within them, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He talks about a new heart, the central place of who we are. How does he do that? Christ fulfills every human condition of every covenant. The God-man is the faithful covenant partner that we never were and we can never be. He's the one from the family of Abraham who makes good on obedience. He's the one Israelite who passes the law perfectly. He's the king from the line of David who continues to uphold justice and righteousness. 
Hebrews 9, 14 and 15 says this, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Luke 22, 20 says, In the same way, after the supper, this is when Jesus, having the last supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup. The new covenant is my blood, which is poured out for you. Hebrews 7, 22, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Why is it better? It's everlasting. Scripture says that his sacrifice as the Lamb of God, his death, his shedding of blood on my behalf is a guarantee for all time that we no longer have to make continual sacrifices of animals that couldn't take away the ultimate sense of my sin for all time. This is the gospel message This is the good news that as God was saving a people and continuing to make way, continuing to give life in hopeless situations through the history of mankind was to point to the fact that one day God himself as Jesus invaded the earth and kept every single covenant, was perfect. And just like God poured out wrath and all of the consequences that took place for all the history of man says all of that the wrath of God which was stored up for evil was poured out onto the son this is why Jesus says my God my God why have you forsaken me is that the consequence for failure was placed on him But as we know, as God continued to make a way, I dare say small ways in Old Covenant, it's only small compared to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the empty grave. That he says, I will not only cleanse you from your sin, I will not only attribute my righteousness to you as a sinner and as a failure and as a terrible covenant partner, as a horrible lover, as an unfaithful bride. I want to give you my spirit. I want to claim, I want you to claim my righteousness. I want to clothe you. I want to cover you. I want to envelop you with my spirit. And the Holy Spirit, if we, what's the human condition of the new covenant? The human condition is trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The human condition, in some ways, is the same as the old. It's faith. It's saying that I will place every bit of my desperation, and I will place any hope that I have on the atonement of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. It's to declare that I am bankrupt of any hope, and I can't solve my own problem, that I am evil, and I believe that God will wipe away all evil. I should be rid of. So the human condition is simply to agree 
that God has done everything possible to rescue me. That Jesus Christ is my hero. That he is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. And the Holy Spirit is determined to make you live out that righteousness. We call that sanctification. Where he didn't just cleanse you and say, I guess you're pardoned. He cleansed you and then he places himself in you and says, now you will become and continue to be my faithful covenant partner. That he paved the way by his grace that you and I can partner with God to establish his kingdom on earth, to further glorify his name, and to invite others into that family. And that's what I want you to think about as we wrap up. If you're a Christian and you know that you have received the gift of salvation, you are a partner with God, you are a son and daughter of God, you are in his family, you are totally cleansed. He says, I make all things new. That's the new covenant. And maybe you're a church goer, but you're not sure that you know God on this level, that you don't you didn't know. You don't know that God was so serious about a relationship with you that he invited you into this kind of love relationship. If that's the case, recognize the invitation to be a part of the grand narrative of what God is doing. And that's restoring the whole world. And it starts with an invitation to restore your evil heart with a righteous heart. Scripture says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. God transforms people. God changes people's lives. And then he brings a collection of people to further glorify his name until he restores everything in creation. Let's be a part of that. Let's pray. Father, to try to wrap my mind around the grand narrative of what God is doing with man um, almost seems foolish. To try to explain that to anyone else um, <laughs> seems insane. But God, your spirit has desired to be made known to us, a broken, a foolish, and an insane people. And your Spirit has equipped us to understand at least what we need to become a part of your story. And God, I thank you for just the personal touch, the redemption, the transformation, the illumination in my life of what you've done for me. And so I pray that you would, in a very deep and personal way, uh, wreck the sinner that hears this. And like we sang earlier, our sins are many, but your mercies are more. So let them hear the invitation of the God of the universe through the person of Jesus Christ by grace that they can enter in to the forgiveness and cleansing and the partnership to become, in a lot of ways, what we are all created to be. 
And that's united and in perfect fellowship with God through Jesus. Amen. Mm-hmm.